You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, you look great this morning. You sound great this morning. Good to see you. Uh, Keegan, before he leaves the platform, congratulations are in order for this guy. He just graduated with his master's degree in theological studies. Yeah. He said in the early service he wants everyone to call him Master Keegan now. Um, I don't know if we can allow that, but uh, he's more smarter now anyway, uh, hopefully. Hopefully. was my qualifying statement. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1 this morning. John, chapter 1. Uh, if my voice sounds a little strained this morning, I suppose it is, I can assure you that I probably sound worse than I feel. This is kind of an annual thing for me, especially when the weather is schizophrenic like it has been uh, in recent weeks. It's like can't make up its mind and this happens, but at any rate, um, hopefully that's not distracting to you this morning. Last week I mentioned a special edition of uh, Life magazine that was re-released Earlier this year, I think that edition was first published in 2018, uh, and the cover uh, with the uh, what was an image of Jesus supposedly uh, asked the question, "Who do you say that I am?" Uh, and if you, if you look, you'll find that through the years, uh, other magazines, of course, Time Magazine is one that has uh, made similar attempts to answer essentially the same important question, especially around this time of year. Uh, and they will, you know, approach it from different angles and all those things. Of course, most of those articles are written by uh, agnostics, in some cases atheists, certainly from a secular uh, viewpoint or perspective. Um, but they are essentially trying to ask the question, answer the question, who is Jesus? And in attempting to answer that question, they are asking other questions, and many of them very, very important. Uh, like, how is Jesus to be understood? Did he stride out of the wilderness some 2,000 years ago to preach a gentle message of peace and brotherhood? Did he advocate some form of revolution? Was he just a revolutionary leader? Uh, When did he realize that his mission would end with death on a cross? Uh, Did he view himself as the promised Messiah? Did he understand himself to be both God and man? Those are all important questions to ask and answer. That's why the first words of John's gospel are so vitally important. They answer the question, who is Jesus and why did he come to earth? Last week we started this new series called Person of Interest through John's gospel. We'll be in this gospel together for a number of weeks. In fact, uh, much of 2023 most likely And and last week, we started this series by looking at what is John's thesis statement, really. The reason for his writing. We found that in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he said, These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, John wrote his gospel to reveal the identity of Jesus so that we might respond in belief. That's the purpose for his writing, that you may believe. And he opens his gospel with what we typically call the prologue, uh, and it declares in clear terms that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh. 
And so John then weaves the idea of the incarnation through the rest of the narrative. Jesus claimed deity. That's an important claim. His miracles, what John refers to many times as signs, they support his claim. His activities presupposed uh, this truth. And his resurrection finally vindicated and authenticated everything that he said and everything that he did. John's prologue gives us four reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is God. And so I want us to, to unpack those for just a moment. Jesus Christ, number one, is eternal, has no beginning, and will have no end. We're going to look at that more closely this morning. Number two, Jesus Christ is the creator. All things were made by him, which would tell us that he is not created. Number three, Jesus Christ is the source of life. Nothing remains alive apart from him. And number four, Jesus Christ, though completely human, fully reveals the Father. So let's once again look at the first five verses of John chapter 1. He writes, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is capitalized there. It's a reference to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Both Matthew and Luke begin their gospel accounts in the way that we might expect. They start with the story of Jesus's birth, of of Bethlehem, of the angels, the stable, the, the shepherds, later the wise men, and all of that. Mark, as I mentioned last week, uh, was, seemed to always be in a hurry. Uh, he, would, he would use words like it immediately or straightway. He, he was in such a hurry that he didn't want to be bothered with all that, I suppose. And so he goes straight to Jesus' baptism uh, in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Those three Gospels we often call the synoptic Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all begin with Jesus down here below. On the earth, in ministry, in flesh and blood. But John begins in an altogether different way. John doesn't try to bring Jesus in secretly and then tell us halfway through the story, by the way, this Jesus is God's son. This Jesus is is God in the flesh. No, John tells you right up front. He, He doesn't even begin from below. He begins from above. It's as if his eyes are turned heavenward as he writes, as he begins to tell the story of Jesus. He begins with some of the most amazing words that have ever been written in all of literature. And in these opening verses, John introduces us to what really is the centerpiece of the gospel. Usually these verses are, again, referred to as the prologue. Now, John's gospel can basically be divided into two parts. The first 12 chapters uh, introduce to us the signs uh, that Jesus gives of his real identity authenticating signs, the miracles that he performs. And John will add occasionally in his writing, this is the first of the signs and the second of the signs and so on. The first half of the Gospel of John is often referred to as the book of signs. 
Then from chapter 14 uh, through the end of the gospel, it's as if Jesus withdraws from the world and he focuses his ministry upon his disciples and he discloses to them some of the most profound mysteries of his identity and his mission. The discourse, you remember, in the upper room in John chapter 14 and then chapter 15, chapter 16, the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. Those are all in the second half of John's gospel. And that second half of John's gospel is often referred to as the book of glory. So you have the the book of signs and the book of glory. And what's interesting is that chapters 1 through 12 really cover three plus years Uh, of Jesus' life and are characterized by public proclamation, by these spectacular miracles. Chapters 13 through 21 cover basically three plus days. And they are characterized by private instruction and by intimate discourses. But these verses are are the prologue to the two halves of the Gospel of John. And what we have in this prologue is is it's kind of like an overture to an opera where some of the major themes of the opera are played in just little snippets. And so the references here in the prologue to light and life that we're going to look at this morning, glory, are issues, they're aspects, they're they're, they're theological constructs that John is going to enlarge upon throughout his gospel. So let's look at these first five verses together today. And consider, first of all, Jesus existed before the beginning of creation. We're talking about the important doctrine of the eternality of God. So when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we're not celebrating the beginning of Jesus. Okay, what we're celebrating is the incarnation. When the Lord Jesus Christ, who always was, always has been, always will be, came into this world as a baby, took on human flesh, Now, there are three stages of the glory of Jesus Christ that unfold in the course of this prologue. The first of those stages has to do with the origin of Jesus. So let's talk about that for a moment. If you look at those opening, what are really three words in our English language, in the beginning, in the original language, those are just two words, in beginning, is is really what it says there. And if you look at those words, in the beginning, those of you who have your ears attuned today will know immediately what John is doing. Because when he begins his gospel with those words, in the beginning, you've already remembered that that's the way the book of Genesis begins, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's another interesting thing to tie it all together. If you look at John's writing in 1 John, most scholars believe that it was this same John who wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Notice the way that he begins that. He says in in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. See the similar language? The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He goes on to write there, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. How interesting, on a day when we are thinking about joy, 
Where does that real joy come from? It comes through knowing personally, intimately, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God come in the flesh. So John takes us back further than any of the other gospel writers. Remember, Matthew goes back to Abraham and his genealogy uh, in in that first gospel, but that's not back far enough. John is saying, if you really want to understand who Jesus is, if you really want to grasp something of the glory of Jesus Christ, you have to go back to the very beginning. You have to go back to the moment when matter was formed. And particles came together, and atoms, and molecules, and neutrons, and all those subatomic particles and forces came into existence by the creative word of God. That's where you have to start. And what John is saying is this, that at that moment when creation came into being, the word of God, Jesus Christ, already was. Already was. He already had existence. And if he were there at the beginning, then Jesus Christ is not to be thought of as a part of creation. He he is uncreated. He is not part of the world as we know it. He's not part of the universe. He's not part of the solar system. He's not part of the great universe in which you and I live. Because at the very moment when his creation was brought into being, he already had been. He already was. He already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That's, That's easy to say, but it's one of the most profound sentences ever to have been written. You can search all of literature, and I guarantee you, you'll not come up with a more profound statement than that which John makes right here in this opening verse. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some of you are inclined to say, wait, wait, just a minute, Pastor. Either he was God, or else he was with God. And if he was with God, then he wasn't God, and if he was God, then he wasn't with God. Do you see the problem? How can he be God and be with God at the same time? And in order to get out of that little conundrum, that problem, of course, some have resorted to a different translation. Among them, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the New World Translation. And, of course, they they resort to a translation that would say this, the Word was with God and the Word was a God. Was a God. Not the God, but a God. Some smaller, uh, insignificant God amongst the pantheon of gods. Now, that sounds wonderful. The only problem with that, of course, is that's not what John says here. (laughs) That's not what John says at all. It's neither grammatically nor contextually compatible with what John writes. John did not say that Jesus was a God, some minor deity. John says that Jesus is God. Is God. You ever heard the little expression, maybe you've used it yourself, that something doesn't make an iota of difference? Not one iota of difference does it matter. It doesn't matter one iota. Okay, an iota, of course, is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. It's equivalent to more or less to the English I. We wouldn't say it iota, we would actually say it yoda. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, yoda, not to be confused with the uh, Jedi master. Okay, (laughs) And in the 4th and 5th centuries, here's the thing. Little children uh, recited a little chorus that they had been taught. 
And in that chorus in the streets, the little children would be heard saying things, singing things like, there was a time when the S-O-N was not, when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun didn't have existence. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. And part of the controversy that ensued between Arius and his counterpart Athanasius at that time was over one little Greek letter. Whether that letter was included made the difference between two words. The only difference between those two words is the little Yoda. And someone saying it doesn't make an iota of difference. But Athanasius, against the whole world, said that that little letter made all the difference in the world. It's a lot like our comma. I know you've seen this can make all the difference in the world, right? We can say at Christmas time, when it's time for dinner, let's eat, kids. Let's eat, comma, kids. But if you forget the comma, that changes everything. <laughs> let's eat, kids. Makes a huge difference. So you say here, well, what is all the fuss about? What is the deal? If Jesus isn't God, then we're still in our sins. That's what the fuss is all about. If Jesus isn't the true God, the very God of the same substance as the Father, then I'm still lost in my sin. Jesus is God. John is saying that here. And here's another error. He's not the only one who is God. And I'm using my language very carefully here because we're on the precipice, you might say. He is God, but he is not the only one. That, that is that one God. He is God, but at the same time, he is with God, face-to-face, literally, with God, is the way the original text would read, literally towards God, moving in fellowship and in harmony with God. There is one God, but within that God, there is plurality. There is one, and within that oneness, there is more than one. We call it the three in one. There is God the Father, there is God the Son, and although the prologue here doesn't mention it explicitly, there is God the Holy Spirit. And John wants us to understand that before the creation of the world, before any matter or particles came into existence, the Word of God already had being. And that Word of God, Jesus Christ, was in fellowship and in harmony with the Father. You know why he's telling us that? Because as he goes on to say in verse number 18 here of chapter 1, no man hath seen God at any time, but Jesus Christ, he writes, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. He has explained him, it says in the New American Standard. He has exegeted him, is quite literally what he is saying. So what what does Jesus do? Jesus reveals God's mind. Jesus expresses God's will. Jesus displays God's perfections. He exposes God's heart. Is that not the most beautiful thought you could ever have at Christmas? That here is the Father, here is the Son. They are one God in fellowship with each other in the mystery of the communion of the Trinity. And Jesus Christ has come into the world, taken on human flesh to make something of that mystery known to us. Isn't that the most extraordinary thing? So that when you enter into fellowship with Jesus Christ by faith, 
you are experiencing something of the intimacy and the fellowship that exists between the Father and the Son. And that's one of the most beautiful things you can think about. So before creation, the beginning of creation, Jesus was. He existed. The second thing I want us to see from these first five verses today is that Jesus is the creator. He's the creator. So if the first thing has to do with the origin of Jesus, then the second thing has to do with creation itself. And look at what he says in verses 3 and 4 once again. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So two things he tells us. All things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he's saying at least two things here. That Jesus created everything... And that he is the one who sustains everything that is. That's it. It's so simple to say again. But understand, Jesus made everything and sustains everything. Creation and providence are in the hands of Jesus Christ. Now, he may be unrecognized by the world. And that's why people are still writing articles looking for the lost Jesus and the, uh, this and that. And they're trying to approach it from all these different angles. But it's important for us to understand what John is saying here. Why is this so important to John? I think it's because one of the things that John wants us to tell us is that Jesus' greatest ministry is to recreate. To recreate. You see, if you're a Christian today, if you've turned from your sin and, and by faith trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you're what we would call a Christian if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a part of the new creation. The Apostle Paul wrote, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. So what has taken place in the heart and the soul of a believer in Jesus Christ is an act of recreation. Made new. I think that's why John is referring so much to creation here in this opening chapter. Now, let me give you a little spoiler alert, okay? There, there's a wonderful climax to the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20. And we'll eventually get there, okay? When Jesus comes in his resurrection body, and he does something extraordinary. And John is the only Gospel writer who records this for us. He breathes on the disciples. Now that's kind of a foreign concept to us, right? Like if I walk into the room and we're at a gathering together and I just walk up to you and go, You'd be like, Pastor, woo. First of all, you'd think, that's pretty rude, man. Like, and you might need a breath mint, brother. Like, you know, you know, it's just kind of an odd concept. We don't typically do that, right? Especially in the weird age in which we, I guess, still live, although we're, I think, post-COVID. But anyway, that's it, just an odd thing. John records that for us. What, what an extraordinary passage. He breathes on the disciples. And we'll look at it in more detail later on. But what an extraordinary passage. Why does John refer to that act? Why does he record it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Because just as John had been reading the first chapter of Genesis as he wrote the prologue, I think John had also been reading the second chapter of Genesis as he wrote this prologue. You remember what's in the second chapter of Genesis? How God created out of the dust of the ground what we call a human being, Adam, 
Adam and breathed life into that human being that, that he has created? He literally breathed the breath of life into him. It may well be here, when John refers to Jesus as the creator and the sustainer of all things, what he wants to allude to in particular is that Jesus is the one who is coming, not only to save individuals like you and me, but that we might believe in him. He is coming to form a new creation. He is beginning a new creation. Imagine asking John, if this carpenter of Nazareth, is really God, then why is he here? It's all about this new creation. And in verses 4 and 5, I want us to notice thirdly today, John provides us two answers to that question. Jesus is life and light. He is life and light. Now, we've already established the fact that life is one of the major themes of John's gospel. Some, in fact, some of the most familiar verses in John's gospel talk about life, okay? And we see that right here in these first five verses. What does it really mean when, when Scripture says that in, in Ephesians, for example, that without Jesus, we are dead in our sin? We talk about that fairly often here, right? That Jesus did not come just to make good people better or to give us a better life here. No, he came to make dead people, spiritually dead people, alive. That's why he came. So what does it mean then to be spiritually dead? To be spiritually dead. Well, think about it. Death is fundamentally a separation, isn't it? In fact, it is pictured this way many times throughout Scripture. When we die, our spiritual part, what we call our soul, is separated from our physical part, our body. And we feel this separation very deeply when we attend the, the funeral of someone that we love. Though the body may be present in the casket, the part of a person that really makes them who they are is no longer present. The body and the soul have been separated. That's why scripture says to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord, right? So check this out. In physical, if physical death is the separation of the body and the soul then spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. Physical death pictures the far more terrifying and sobering reality of spiritual death. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from God. So Jesus came to give us life. To give us life, to reconcile us with holy God, changing our present condition and our future destination. So how do you receive this spiritual life that is found in Christ? By placing your faith and trust in him, John will tell us uh, more explicitly in John chapter 11, verse 25. In other words, you will no longer be separated from God and cut off as an, en as an enemy but welcomed as an adopted son or daughter. Isn't it amazing how we continue to come back to that theme of adoption as it relates to our relationship with God? So what is a Christian? I suppose that if we went out here on the streets of Van Alstine and we did one of those man-in-the-street kind of things, we walked around with a video camera and a microphone and we just asked random people on the streets, what is a Christian? We'd get a lot of different responses, Right? A lot of different responses. Some of them would be right. Some of them would be incredibly wrong. 
I suspect that a lot of people would uh, reference religion of some sort, uh, some religious activities that we might give ourselves to, good things. There's all sorts of responses that we would give. But what is a Christian? Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I- I'm not sure I could answer that question. I, I think I have an idea, but-, but I'm not real sure. A Christian, according to God's word and what we're reading here and understanding this morning, is someone who was dead in sin but has now received life. It's someone who was cut off from God, but has now been reconciled. It is someone who was a spiritual corpse, but now has the life of God flowing through him or her. It's someone who was dead to God, but has now been made alive by and for him. Why did Jesus come to earth? To call people from death to life. He came to call us to a living, vibrant relationship with God through faith in him. Those who believe, he makes alive. And he gathers us into a living community that is visibly expressed in what we call the church. That's us. And we're to bear the fruit of his life flowing through us. We demonstrate and declare his life. So Jesus came... To bring us out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. So it's a different metaphor, but it pictures the same truth. Understand this. We need to be rescued from the domain of spiritual darkness. And we're powerless to do anything about it. Now a lot of people would say, well, what I'll do is I'll flip on the switch. I'll turn on the light through my own best efforts, my self-righteousness. But you can't do that. We're powerless to do anything about it. So Jesus came to earth because only he could meet the need. We we, we would be groping in the darkness of our own opinions and self-righteousness if Jesus had not brought the light of God's revelation. You see, hundreds of years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah predicted his coming with these words. Listen carefully. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. That's spiritual darkness. When Jesus came, he said himself, I am the what? The light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so as we move through the Gospel of John together over the weeks to come, we'll eventually come to the end of Jesus' earthly life as John records under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit his cruel crucifixion and his death. In fact, if we were to stop our study after chapter 19, we would want to scream at John and say, John, you were wrong. Jesus is not God. He came and he, he did a lot of amazing things. He said a lot, a lot of amazing things, but ultimately he died just like anybody else does. But the, here's the thing. There's chapter 20. There's chapter 20 where we read about the resurrection. And after his death on the cross, Jesus did not stay dead and buried because he is the life. And the life could not remain dead. Here's the amazing link. In verse number five, I believe John describes the scene with this simple phrase. I think this is a reference to the resurrection. 
It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He conquered death because he is the life, and he is the light. And so would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you. That there was never a time that you did not exist. You always have been. Always will be. And I thank you. That you came in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the flesh. So that we can experience life, true life, spiritual life, that is only made possible through the one who conquered death. I thank you that you are the life and the light. And I praise you for the testimony of those here today who have turned from their sin and turned from that spiritual darkness to the light the gospel have been made spiritually alive and I also pray this morning for those who may be uncertain of that relationship maybe they're searching maybe they're seeking they have a sense that this is certainly a very dark world in which we live broken marred by sin you've come to make all things new to recreate so I pray that if there's anyone here today anyone watching online that has never turned from their sin to faith in you that by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word they would be drawn to you today Lord we thank you we praise you in Jesus name Amen Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.